You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... Residents of Beirut react as a Hamas leader is killed in Lebanon. We'll get the backstory of the US senator accused of working for Qatar with our Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. That's right, Georgina. I'll be talking about the fall of the U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, former head of the Foreign Relations Committee. We'll have a business roundup from Bloomberg. And then John Mitchison will join me to preview some of the top books to be published this year. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Saleh al-Aruri, Hamas's political leader in the West Bank and a founder of its military wing, was killed in an explosion outside Beirut in Lebanon on Tuesday, alongside two senior commanders. The assassination was allegedly carried out by Israel and marks the first such killing of a Hamas leader outside the Palestinian territories since the start of the war. Well, Salam Vakil is director of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House and joins us now with more detail. Salam, welcome back to the show. Who was Saleh al-Aruri? Nice to be with you, Georgina. Well, Saleh al-Aruri is the sort of second-in-command political operative of Hamas, who was initially based in the West Bank um, and then moved to Beirut uh, since October 7th. He's been an important a political and strategic figure for Hamas, um, and uh, is believed to have been uh, supporting the hostage release negotiations as well. And has Israel confirmed that it was responsible? Has there been official comment? No, not um, at this time. There has been no direct responsibility, uh, but uh, it is believed that um, Israel is taking its commitment Uh, to strike out at Hamas leaders wherever they are based, not just in Gaza. Um, And they made this statement just after October 7th, and this is sort of the first successful killing of a Hamas leader um, outside of Gaza. Mm. And what's been the reaction from Lebanon? Uh, Of course, um, the Lebanese government has condemned this operation as a violation of Lebanese sovereignty. There is a broader concern that this will uh, lead to some response from Hezbollah. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah is expected to be speaking at some point uh, today, Um, and there will be a lot of anticipation for some uh, retribution from Hezbollah. I personally don't think that Hezbollah is going to uh, be bold enough uh, to to, uh, risk its position in Lebanon Um, at a precarious political and economic time, um, but also uh, get dragged into a broader conflict in this moment. Mm. Both Iran and Hezbollah are playing a much more longer strategic game in this conflict. But no official comment yet from Hezbollah. Anything from Hamas? Uh, Condemnation, uh, nothing, again, uh, too formal, but, uh, you know, vows of retribution um, and... uh, Uh, Definitely building momentum 
to show that Hamas is a much more of a resilient organization that can't just be eliminated through a striking uh, leadership um, is very much uh, the messaging uh, that is emanating. And as you say, he was originally based in the West Bank. I understand that this has pro- provoked reaction in, in Ramallah. What's going on there? Well, I think that there is uh, obviously concern that um, this very unsettled situation in the West Bank that has been contained, there haven't been demonstrations, there's been a very uneasy uh, situation could become explosive. Um, and that would be dangerous, obviously, for Palestinians there that are uh, very anxious and very upset, um, to put it mildly, but also for Israel, as this would open a broader um, conflict and broader confrontation. But clearly, this is a move that they um, uh, are willing to make, a risk that they are uh, calculating uh, that could pay off. Mm. And how will the loss of Saleh al aruri impact the operational capability of Hamas? Uh, To be honest, Regina, it's very hard to say. I think that Hamas is um, much more of an idea than it is contingent on the leadership of a very, uh, you know, small coterie of individuals. Of course, leadership matters, um, but uh, people like Salah um, Al-Aruri are scaffolded by many others around them. So there will certainly be others that will step up and step in and will carry the fight forward. Mm. What steps is Israel taking to ensure that it doesn't prompt contagion in the region? Well, I think um, Israel right now um, is looking to push back against the other groups on its borders, um, not just directing um, a military response towards Hamas, but trying to reassert Uh, red lines and guardrails with groups that are based in Syria, backed by Iran. There have been strikes in in Syria and around Damascus, and also an Iranian um, IRGC uh, figure was killed uh, just a few weeks ago um, on the Lebanese border, which of course has raised quite a bit of alarm. There has been low-level escalation, of course, with significant loss of life there as well, um, with Israel trying to push Hamas's presence back over the Litani River, which was the agreement um, that was made um, after the 2006 war. Mm. And we're beginning to see more international reaction come in. Uh, The UN and Emmanuel Macron have also called for calm. I think broadly, there is concern that the war in Gaza is going to spread and the international community has, uh, through various means, the U.S. um, through its military presence, but also using diplomatic means, the French, um, Europe more broadly has been trying to message and make clear that it is not in anybody's interest to see a broader conflict. And the longer this war goes on, in Gaza, the risk of a broader conflict increases. We've seen the Houthis answer a law in Yemen also be very provocational, attacking ships, um, threatening maritime security. Uh, so, you know, all of this comes together to really uh, suggest that the risk of a broader war will continue to tick on as long as the operations in Gaza and the devastation there continues. Now, there are reports that Israeli defence forces are pulling out of Gaza. Many of those are alleged to be reservists. Are they being uh, going straight back into civilian life or are they being redeployed to other potential problem areas? I think I, I don't have the details of what's going to happen to them. I think the reason for this um, withdrawal, though, is um, 
maybe uh, numerous. On the one hand, of course, um, the Israeli government is under pressure. The entire Israeli economy and the whole political and uh, civilian establishment is focused on this war and, and bringing people back home and trying to, um, if you can even imagine, get back to life is very important. It's also important to placate the international community and, of course, Washington, um, that has become more impatient with this war. Um, and so uh, the optics of redeployment um, and withdrawing and sort of shifting the phase of the war uh, could also be geared to winning over the court of public opinion, which Israel really seems to be losing right now as well. Sanam, thank you very much indeed. That was Sanam Vakil. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Japanese authorities are investigating the cause of a deadly Tuesday fire at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. The blaze began after a Japanese airline's plane collided with the Coast Guard aircraft, killing five of the six crew on board. Investigators are looking into the communications between the control tower and the aircraft in the moments before the crash. Moscow says Ukrainian forces have attacked the Russian city of Belgorod overnight, days after an airstrike on the city, which Russian forces claim killed 25 civilians. Russia has bombarded Ukrainian cities in recent days, hitting civilian infrastructure in eastern Kharkiv and the capital, Kyiv. Iran has suspended plans to restart flights to Saudi Arabia after an eight-year pause, a setback to warming ties between the regional rivals. Scheduled flights from three Iranian cities to Jeddah were cancelled on Wednesday because Saudi authorities failed to issue the necessary permits, according to Tehran's state news agency. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Laura. The New Jersey Democratic Senator and former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, is facing fresh corruption charges relating to Qatar. He's already pleaded not guilty on charges involving interests linked to Egypt. Well, Chris Chermak is our Washington correspondent. He's with us in London this week and he joins me in the studio. Thanks for coming down, Chris. Now, Menendez has already been charged, as we said, with corruption in relation to Egypt. So what's new in these allegations? So essentially, Georgina, we're adding another country, if you will, to the allegations. As as you said, Menendez is already facing these charges uh, when it comes to Egypt. He's being accused of being a foreign agent of Egypt, giving them sensitive information while head of the Foreign Relations Committee, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. These charges, he's not actually being charged in addition. This sort of falls under the general bribery, corruption charges he's already facing. But what we got yesterday were new details, which included now Qatar. And it's similar things that he, um, well, a couple of things that he did. Essentially, he brokered, uh, the the allegation is he brokered a real estate deal between a Qatari investment authority linked to the royal family with a New Jersey businessman. And that he was part of this deal. He was helping to get it through, issuing positive comments about Qatar, which then the New Jersey, his friend, the New Jersey businessman could use in order to get the Qataris to buy into New Jersey, for example. He also potentially, allegedly accepted bribes, watches potentially from the New Jersey real estate businessmen, Formula One tickets from the Qataris. So it just falls into this general um, set of charges that Menendez is, is facing about corruption in the case of Egypt. He accepted allegedly cash and gold bars that were found at his house from the Egyptians as well. And caught because he was Googling gold bars. He was. That's part of one of the new revelations of this, whether that is Qatar or Egypt. Uh, but he apparently, after one visit to Egypt and Qatar, came back and was Googling the value of a one kilogram gold bar. How, how senior is Menendez and, and what's the fallout been? I mean, is he, is he going to resign? 
Well, that is the question. I mean, he's been a senator since 2006. He's a veteran of the Democrats. He was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He resigned from that post in September when these charges were first released. He has said he won't resign. He, of course, denies all of the allegations. He denied the new allegations related to Qatar as well. That said, you know, 30 senators have called on him to resign, including Democrats. John Fetterman, Pennsylvania Democrat, has actually called for his expulsion. So it will be interesting to see whether that kind of picks up in the new year, given these Qatar allegations as well now. Mm. That would be the next step to actually expel him from the Senate. So we know that the United States has reached a deal to extend its military presence at a base in Qatar for another 10 years. Qatar is also a major non-NATO U.S. ally. How might this case impact on the U.S.-Qatari relationship? Yeah, it's very interesting given this relationship that the U.S. has, both, as you say, this military presence that the U.S. has long had there, and also just they've often used Qatar as a kind of intermediary, whether it's with the Taliban or Hamas as well now. So Qatar and the U.S. have had a very important diplomatic relationship you could say it's unlikely to impact that given given the importance for both sides of that. But what I think is interesting for this is how it might impact the business image. You know, Qatar is also trying essentially to clean up their international image to invest in the U.S. and elsewhere, holding sports events, international sports events, those kinds of things. And that's where what something like Menendez, what he's doing, issuing positive comments on Qatar those kinds of things, that's where this would play in. So it will be interesting to see whether it has an impact in that sense on the US-Qatari business relationship. And what about the relationship with Egypt? That one is even more complicated, you could argue, particularly because, as I said at the beginning, Menendez is accused not only of, of accepting bribes, but also accused of acting as a foreign agent, providing sensitive information to Egypt, and also encouraging senators to lift a hold on aid to Egypt. And this is a key aspect of this, because the U.S. provides military aid to Egypt but they have, there's a conditionality there when it comes to human rights. And this is something that often has had to be waived under Egypt's current president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. In September, the U.S. waived its human rights conditions in order to provide a measure of military aid to Egypt. But this is something that is controversial. Menendez was lobbying on behalf of Egypt for that aid to go through. It'll be interesting to see whether that is something that's impacted. Mm. Chris, just before I let you go, the other big story making headlines, mostly in Washington, but certainly across the US, is uh, about the president of Harvard. Yes, the president of Harvard has been under uh, a long time, sort of for for many weeks now, has faced uh, calls to, to resign over basically an appearance uh, before Congress with, an, um, with a few other uh, heads of uh, universities as well over allegations essentially of anti-Semitism. And this, this kind of relates to what's been happening a lot at universities at the moment in the United States. This question of protests, whether they go too far, what the sort of grade of free speech is. And her comments, she was essentially accused of going too far in defending the rights of free speech for pro-Palestinians on American campuses. She had said for a long time she would not resign. Um, now it seems she has changed her mind. The pressure simply became too great. I mean, this is this is something that has been going on, as I say, for weeks, and it's going to be interesting to see how this debate continues in the U.S. on campuses, what that sort of right line is, if you will, for free speech. 
um, when it comes to pro-Palestinian protests, something that we're seeing more of these days, certainly in the US, than we really ever have before. Mm, I mean, it's been called a new front in the culture wars. Absolutely. It is a new front, in part because I think it's fair to say, compared to, say, Europe, you didn't really see that much of this in the United States. You had much more of a pro-Israel stance in the past. But with what's happening in Gaza, with the images that we're seeing, um, you have seen a stronger movement among particularly young uh, left-leaning, particularly Democrats in the U.S. who are protesting uh, for the Palestinian cause as well. And that has raised heckles on the, with, with sort of the right and with pro-Israeli groups as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Chris Chermak, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now let's get the latest business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello to you, Ewan. Uh, We are talking about inflation very much in focus at the start of the new year. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I think uh, markets had something of a a New Year hangover to start 2024. Of course, we had an enormous party in the final months of last year. Stocks and bonds and many other assets really surging uh, on the expectation that uh, central banks around the world have got inflation licked. And that means lower interest rates as we move into the new year. Well, somewhere where that is certainly not the case is Turkey. We had inflation data out of uh, Turkey today. And the headline inflation number came in at 65%. Core inflation, that excludes volatile food and energy prices. Well, that was above 70%. And services inflation, uh, hotels, cafes, restaurants, etc., that is above 90%. So prices in many of those services almost doubled now from uh, a year ago. So Turkey has a pretty nasty uh, inflation problem. Uh, adding adding to the uh, troubles, uh, the government just raised uh, the minimum wage by close to 50%. Of course, it's very difficult when uh, prices are increasing by so much for the government not to take action, particularly uh, for poorer voters. Uh, so the government's uh, adding to the inflation problem by uh, raising the minimum wage. Now, Turkey's had a problem with inflation for some time. We've been discussing this uh, a year ago uh, on Monocle, and it's not something which they've really been able to sort out. They have been attempting to improve the credibility of the central bank. Of course, there have been a lot of political uh, issues with President Erdogan uh, intervening, uh, sacking central bank governors in the past. Uh, And there's a lot of, uh, I would say, scepticism about central bank forecasts from Turkey. They're often saying that inflation is going to come down rapidly, and that just hasn't been the case. Their current prediction is that by the end of the year, it will be down to 36%, still a long way above their target and still a lot worse than we face elsewhere uh, in the world. But there's still uh, some doubt that Turkey will be able to get inflation uh, down to 36%. But yeah, quite a nasty inflation problem in Mm. Turkey. Now, Tesla, the electric car maker, has lost its vavoom. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Now, Tesla has uh, lost its crown as the world's biggest maker of electric vehicles. It's lost it to uh, uh, a car maker you might think uh, rather obscure. It's not a name that uh, many people know in the West. It is BYD of China. Most of their sales have been in China, but they are looking to expand uh, around the world. It's actually worth just a tenth as much as Tesla, but they managed to deliver 520,000 cars, electric cars, electric only cars in the latest quarter. That beat Tesla's 480,000. Tesla was pretty pleased with that number. It was ahead of uh, estimates, ahead of their target. But BYD BYD have now uh, stolen that crown. If you throw in uh, trucks, buses and plug-in hybrids, uh, then BYD's sales total is 75% 75 higher 
than that pure uh, electric number. So it's a company which is really, really growing fast. Uh, and in contrast with Tesla, which racked up years and years of losses as they were building the business before finally become profitable in 2019, BYD has hardly ever posted negative operating income. It's done that in part by owning its own battery supply chain, and it's focused on uh, cheaper batteries using abundant iron and phosphorus instead of uh, scarce uh, commodities like cobalt uh, and nickel. So it's managed to keep uh, its margins high and its prices relatively low. An interesting development on the uh, EV front in the US, obviously a very important market for all these manufacturers, uh, is a change by the government from the 1st of January on tax credits. So the number of uh, vehicles eligible for the uh, US government subsidy for electric vehicles, which can be as much as $7,500, has been slimmed down from about two dozen to just 13. And these rules are designed to crack down on Chinese-made batteries. So there's a limit on the amount of uh, battery which can come uh, from China. And that is going to affect uh, Tesla as well as some of the Chinese manufacturers. Tesla's Model Y should be okay, but some of their Model 3s are going to fall foul of this. So that's going to be uh, something of a headwind for a number of companies in the US. Ewan Potts, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. By all accounts, 2024 will be a stellar year for publishing, with some highly anticipated work being released. John Richardson is co-founder of the independent publisher Unbound, and he joins me on the line to unpack some of the best we can look forward to. Uh, John, thanks very much for coming on the show and travel chaos out there in Britain today. You were uh, meant yeah. to be in the studio and the trains <laughs> just didn't allow that. Um, um, but at least water. I, water everywhere. Uh, water on the lines. But at least, I mean, the thing about it a train journey is it is an opportunity to read ah, completely um and i i avail myself of that opportunity all the time um i i, I mean I, I actually think the the whole act of reading now is is when people do it is interesting um i i get asked all the time because i'm i'm obviously presenting a books podcast as well as reading for work and i think the answer is you you know you find you just have to you just have to make the time to do it mm. but nothing i find is more rewarding and uh, yeah, that lovely hour on a train, getting lost in a in a book, and not, nobody can reach you. You're just you're, you're just you can just concentrate on that. I mean, I find like you, I'm having to read so much for work, and I'm doing things like listening to audio books on you know double time as I do a million other things, and it's just it's just not the same, is it? Anyway, what can we? What what are you in particular looking forward to? There's the ultimate bad boyfriend book, isn't there? My word, yeah. Um, <laughs> An extraordinary start to the, to, to the year, and and this is uh, this book has already, I think, gained cult status at Weidenfeld and Nicholson, where it's being published. Um, Shimon Suleiman, uh, a poet and uh, an essayist, probably best known for her her uh, co-editing of the American edition of uh, The Good Immigrant. Uh, she was in the UK edition of The Good Immigrant that we published at Unbound back in 2016. Um, uh, I mean, a trenchant and beautiful writer. Um, and this book starts, this book is called The Chain. And I guess it's, 
yeah, I mean, <laughs> the ultimate bad boyfriend book is the way to to describe it. It starts with a fairly traumatic um, experience of her um, uh, in one cold winter some years ago in New York, um, going to uh, have an abortion, and that uh, the uh, the inability really of her partner, then partner, to to deal with um, the implications of that, lead to the uncovery of a whole network of lies and deceptions and deceits. Um, and I suppose the book is one at one level, you know, a page turner in that you're you, you know you're the revelations and the understandings, the connections. It, it's called the chain. For a number of reasons, not least because of the great Fleetwood Mac song that kind of runs through the narrative. Um, but what also comes out of it is, I think, a book of of great beauty and 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 and, and ferocious wisdom. Um, you know, Shimen is a, an uncompromising writer. She comes from a Turkish Cypriot background. Um, her her writing, particularly about the, her grandfather who'd been tortured and mur murdered in the in the Civil War in Cyprus, uh, some of the most moving essays I've, I've read, but this takes it to a new level. Mm. Um, well, let's stay with the uh, with, uh, great rock tunes <laughs> because Tiffany Murray has My Family and Other Rock Stars coming out. Now, this is a memoir, but I, I remember reading her, her, her novel, uh, Diamond Star Halo, which won the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for, for comedy writing. Uh, and this this book would appear to me, and I'm sure you know more, but as, as the memoir version of that novel. Yeah, I mean... Well, it's it is that it's it, she grew up in this remarkable um, kind of uh, uh, improvised family. Her mother was the chef at Rockfield Studios in Monmouthshire, legendary uh, studios um, where uh, some of the great rock acts of, of the 1970s um, when she was growing up. Uh, you know, for everybody from Black Sabbath and Judas Priest to it's it's where Queen re recorded also Bohemian Rhapsody, and and Tiff's mum was cooking for them, so threaded through Tiff's memoirs of growing up, which I think are, are again really beautifully done. She's got an ama amazing. She'll list all the words during each bit of the story that vocabulary that she's adding to from hanging out with these frankly extraordinary people who are all it seems um you know there is a bit of misbehavior uh, quite a few food fights but threaded through it also are these wonderful recipes from her mum and with little notes from her mum to tiff about her her mum's so it's almost like a kind of a joint memoir it's it's tiff growing up in this very extraordinary environment where her stepfather was a producer and her mum was cooking uh, and, 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 and hanging out with some of Rock's finest uh, while also being a teenager and in a fairly feral kind of rural <laughs> environment. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's quite unlike anything I've read. And, and, I, uh, and I think, um, and in really, I mean, likeable and funny. So many great stories. And she's such a great woman, isn't she? She's done a huge amount for writers, particularly in Wales. She has, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's that kind of kindness and, and, and generosity of, uh, and kind of understanding of the difficulties of the creative process, which is what makes her so good, at, as it were, at her day job, mm. just shines out of this book. But also, she's just got a great seat. There's an amazing scene in this where Lenny's parents arrive, and Lenny's parents are um, are extremely kind of uh, they're not what you would imagine at all. They're quite quite you know quite well dressed, 
and um, very keen to see Lenny. And Lenny obviously doesn't, he's he's not, he doesn't want to come out of the studio to see them. So they make, um, Tiff's mum makes a high tea for Lenny's mum, which they absolutely adore. And finally they coax Lenny out. But she talks about how she and Lenny used to trade. She would have to drink Jack Daniels in order to get any food inside him. The, the, the management were always keen that Lenny, the motorhead management were always keen that Lenny ate something because he otherwise subsisted entirely on Jack Daniels. And of course, being the kind of the warm, loving person that she is, Tiff's mum makes, she includes Jack Daniels into all kinds of recipes. So uh, to try and persuade <laughs> him, it's just, it's full. It's it's like, a, it's one of those things, Georgina, where you're, you, you imagine you know what a rock memoir is because we've read so many of yeah. them but this is like from a completely different perspective from oh, a young wonderful. girl's perspective and through this most ridiculous thing cooking food for them nurturing them giving you know uh, quite often she'd have to leave you know the food out for them because they'd be working through the night recording you know some of the great albums of of, of, of the modern age so I, I think it's charming 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 book let's have a quick look at enlightenment which is sarah perry's new one interestingly i think she has changed publishers for this she has um and i have to say it's i, I i'm a great fan of 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 uh, this is her fourth novel and obviously the essex serpent became a huge riotously successful bestseller and it's a book i absolutely admire but to her great credit i think she although there are certain elements of the essex serpent that are there this book has at its heart a mystery, historical mystery, um, about uh, and a ghost story, and the two are connected. About a, an astronomer who may or may not have discovered uh, a, a, a woman astronomer um, who may or may not have discovered a, a new comet in the late nineteenth century. Um, and then there are two modern kind of parallel love stories: um, uh, Grace Macaulay, who's a, a, a young woman. And Thomas Hart, who is a man, a journalist in his 1950s, somewhat, both of them somewhat tormented by their their, their uh, religious beliefs. Um, so it does, you know, it's all set in a small town in Essex. And as always, her, her writing of about landscape and the, the kind of brooding power of those flat Essex fields and the sense of history just under the surface of the soil is there. So it has kind of elements of folk horror it has kind of elements of the gothic as you would expect mm. but my god she pulls it together so brilliantly I, I i think this is a step change for her as a writer i think this is a really seriously um profound and interesting novel about about science about our relationship with the natural world our relationship with with ancestors in the past mm. it's it's she she does this particular kind of thing better than anyone and it's 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 not a it's not a genre. I don't think you can call it a genre gothic novel. I think she's sort of breaking out of the the, the straitjacket of that in in ways that are exciting. Mm, mm. Uh, now, of course, Knife, which is Salman Rushdie's new one uh, about the attack on him, is coming out, published by Random House in, in April. That will be discussed endlessly elsewhere. So I think we just need to mark the fact that it's coming out there. I'd like to turn to a book that's coming out uh, next week, and that's My Friends by Hisham Matar, who is, of course, uh, the, the American Libyan writer, won the Pulitzer Prize for The Return, uh, which was uh, all about his father. That was in 2017, won loads of awards. 
awards for that. I was actually at a party with him the other day and there was somebody who clearly hadn't read his work uh, sort of questioning him about it and saying, well, how much editorial do uh, control do, do, do your publishers have? And Hisham was rather modestly saying, oh, they just kind of let me get on with it. And <laughs> you wanted to say, yeah, the guys won a Pulitzer. I think it's OK. Um, but I'm really, really looking forward to, to this book. It, it follows three Libyans in London. It's very compassionate. It's eye-opening novel about exile and the price of freedom and, and, and human connection. Uh, and interestingly, uh, Hisham is going to the Hey Cartagena Festival uh, in Colombia uh, uh, towards the end of this month. And I'll be there too. So we're, we're planning lots of Colombian adventures together. Um, and there's one last book that I just want to flag up for you. Now, this is only coming out in September and it's published by Canongate. And I will give you the title and some of the description and then you have to guess, OK? So it's called Exit Wounds, A Story of Life, Love and Occasional Wars. And here's a bit of the blurb. Peter's mother is dying, born in England and having spent most of her adult life as a doctor in Zimbabwe, she now lies on a hospital bed in the partitioned living room of his sister's London house, her accent having overnight become posher than the Queen's. Well, you are in fact speaking to his sister. <laughs> so that's that's my brother ah, Peter Godwin's Peter, book. Peter, wonderful. Yeah. Um, wonderful. And so that's a lovely, lovely new book. Not coming out till September. We're still in the midst of edits for it. But I do hope, John, that that's one you're going to read. Um, I'm, I'm a, I was a massive, massive fan of. of um, I mean, what was 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 the African book his first? Mukiwa was the one that Mokiwa. won the George Orwell Prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, yeah. And, uh, and Mukiwa was. Uh, I th- I think certainly felt like one of the classic memoirs of of, of that of yeah. that period of, of, of publishing. Just before we go, we've both picked a lot of memoirs here. Are <laughs> memoirs having a moment? Well, they are. I mean, I think that's. I mean, are they memoirs? Is is. Yes. I, I think there is a sort of collision here between uh, people trying to sort of um, uh, trying to make sense of the world that we live in, which is. You know, as we know, I think spiral again, once again, spiraling into 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 a, into a place where it's very very difficult to feel confident about anything. So I think the memoir Turkey t- combination of personal experience and reflection, often political reflection, as in Shemen's book, or or just uh, you know that kind of authenticity which I think which Tiffany's book has. I mean, I think there is a lot of memoir out there, but I have to say, I'm also astonished to look at the the number of writers who've got fiction new fiction coming out next week yeah ali smith colin tobin kevin barry rachel cusk monique roffey ronan hessian these are this is this this is going to be a bumper year for fiction as well i think john my to be read pile is up to the ceiling thanks so much for joining us john richardson and that's all for this edition of the briefing it was produced by lillian fawcett and laura kramer our studio manager was tamsin howard and the briefing will be back tomorrow at the same time i'm georgina godwin goodbye and thanks for listening